Back chat. Back chat. Back chat. Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Back chat. Back chat. Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Back Chat on FBI Radio 94.5, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. And I'm Natalie Sekolovska. Happy to be on the air with you this week. So glad to have you. Yes, there's been a lot going on in the media landscape in between all the democratic debates, homophobic footy players and criminally ignored female sports people. So we're bringing you all the stories you might not have heard on your airwaves this week. First up, we have City of Sydney councillor Jess Miller here to talk to us about what's being called a climate emergency and how the City of Sydney plans to reduce our carbon footprint. And after that, we're looking at the way our public transport system might be evolving through changes in policy and technological innovation. And as always, we want to hear from you. What do you find most annoying about Sydney's public transport system? Dear God, there must be a long list because I know I have one. Let's know. Let us all know um, by texting us in on 0409-945-945 or, as always, tweet us at BackchatFBI. Backchat. Text 0409-945-945. So Australia has experienced its hottest day in 80 years this summer. Bushfire season is becoming longer and more intense and 96% of New South Wales is still in drought. Yet after signing the Paris Agreement, Australia's greenhouse emissions have increased in the past four years, demonstrating just how little our government is willing to do for future generations. Change hasn't occurred on a federal level, but it looks like our local council has had enough of the inaction with Sydney. Lord Mayor Clovermore declaring a climate emergency. The local Sydney government is following more than 600 locals, state and federal governments worldwide, uh, that have done the same. But what exactly is a climate emergency and will we finally see a change in Australia's carbon footprint? We've got City of Sydney councillor Jess Miller, the Deputy Chair of the Environment Committee, to answer exactly that. Welcome to the show, Jess. Hello, good morning. So what exactly does a climate emergency mean? Oh, well, let's talk about the weather, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The climate emergency declaration is the result of quite a few things in play, really. But one of the most significant things that we've seen in the last probably 12 months is this movement of people led predominantly by the Extinction Rebellion who are shifting the narrative around climate change and saying that now is the time that we need to take an emergency response. So just like any other emergency response... You don't kind of, you know, hang around and debate it and discuss it and and sort of argue as to whether or not it's really happening. If something, like, full-on is happening that requires emergency response, firstly, you have to take decisive action, action being kind of like the operative word, and secondly, you acknowledge that there's a sense of danger in place. So part of the point of declaring a climate emergency is kind of make is to make that shift in the narrative and start really focusing on action. It's called telling the truth, right? Yeah, so the Extinction Rebellion are a really interesting crew that came out of, and they've been doing a lot of work in Europe and uh, Germany, we've seen in the news the past week. And there are three kind of demands that the rebellion ask for. One of them is to tell the truth from government and to acknowledge 
that the problem is pretty dire. The second one is to really get this transition to renewables happening quickly. And thirdly, is this really interesting idea around participatory and citizen-led democracy. So trying to break up this habit, I suppose, of governments of being of making decisions based on what people from the top want and also thinking a little bit about systemic change. So what within the systems of governments and business is preventing us from getting on and doing the work required around climate change? Yeah, so it's really interesting that you kind of bring up that it should be kind of bottom up rather than kind of coming from the top and kind of trickling down, which is what we've been seeing a lot of. But do you think a declaration like this and, you know, protests from Extinction Rebellion and groups like that will actually have or at least make a difference on a state and federal level? You know, it's really hard to say. I think not doing anything is not really an option. So having people out there in the street and and trying to add pressure is, is really critical. But at the same time, I think what we're noticing at the moment is that these types of messages aren't just coming from the usual suspects. So just this week, there was an article that I read in Reuters whereby man- managers, so investment bankers or, you know, very, very moneyed, moneyed people um, have said that they will take $34 trillion worth of investments. And these guys, these guys handle big amounts of money. And they have written a joint letter to government in Europe saying we need action on climate change because not only does inaction on climate change pose an environmental risk, but it's really posing a financial risk. So I think what I found really interesting is that recently the Guardian updated its style guide. So from this point on, it's going to use the term climate emergency instead of climate change. Uh, Another example is global heating rather than global warming and so on. So I think it's really important to discuss language. So what is the significance of language when it does come to talking about climate issues? Ooh, it's pretty juicy. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, I like to talk about the weather <laughs> because it is, it's super polarizing. And, you know, there's this whole idea of cognitive dissonance, right? One of our very human responses to threat is to either fight it and go, hey, you know what? Like, I am going to get you away. I'm going to go and watch Game of Thrones and it's not happening <laughs> and I don't want to deal with it. Or you fight it and you try and pick up a narrative that is more comfortable with you. And so when we make this change in language and our response to the weather, I think we need to do a really good job about understanding what this transition means for people. So if, you know, you hear these people saying, you know, we're going to, we're going to take away all these things and we're going to make your life really hard. Of course, it's not going to fly. And what I think the city has done a really good job of doing is to demonstrate to people what this transition to a a renewable economy looks like and what the opportunities are. And this move to things like community-owned and operated energy is fantastic because not only are you a shareholder in your local energy provision, but you get cheaper energy. What a great message. You can have all of your heaters, all of your TVs on. You can have them on all day with nobody home if you like as long as the energy that is powering them comes from the sun. That is amazing. And these, I think, are the kinds of narratives that we need to be exploring and encouraging and talking about rather than 
always just playing into this fear-based politics. So, Jess, you're a councillor. You come from the government. Uh, You do. You do. You're you're that side of it. What a statement. No, because because, you're that side of the thing. And you were talking a lot about participatory democracy. You're talking about uh, people getting involved on a more grassroots level. Uh, I feel like the fact that those arguments come from you gives it more clout. Do you feel that's the case? Do you feel like you have a bit more power in the space that, say, an extension rebellion probably might not? Oh, I mean, we, as local government, we're kind of limited, which is a bummer because we are doing everything that we can and we're pushing up like you would not believe. But I think one of the things that's really important, because my job is, like, I'm not the government. I see my role as being a representative of the community. I also live in the community. I work in the community, you know. I think it's really important for our listeners to know that Jess is um, one of the youngest councillors um, in uh, the city of Sydney. I so she is, she is one of us. Uh, not only is that very impressive for her, but she is she's literally also a young person suffering through the same problems that the rest of us are. Thanks, thanks. You're listening uh, to Back Chat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Shami and Natalie. We're speaking to Councillor Jess Miller on the climate emergency declared by the City of Sydney. So speaking of the City of Sydney, what is it doing to reduce its carbon footprint at the moment? Oh, there is like a mixed lolly bag worth of actions that we are doing, everything from Tesla battery storage pilots to solar panels on the roof to renewable energy. There's There's... If there were anything more that we could possibly do, we would be doing it. We are the annoying kind of little mozzie in the ear of state and federal government consistently. But one of the things that's most significant and a little bit boring about the city is that we do a lot of work to actually measure and understand where our emissions come from. And that's really one of the cool things about what the Extinction Rebellion is asking governments to do, which is tell the truth. Another way of thinking about that is being radically transparent with where not only all of your emissions are coming from, but where the climate risk is also coming from. And that's when we go back to this financial argument. If you have a business in the city of Sydney or anywhere in New South Wales or Australia and your your business is constantly being interrupted by floods or heat waves or whatever, it's increasingly going to be in your interest to understand whether or not your business can be insured in the future it's a really important question to ask who actually pays for the changing weather. And as of yet, I don't think we've had a strong enough response from either state or federal government that acknowledges the level of risk that we're all exposed to, nor does there seem to be a state or or national kind of insurance policy. So it's kind of, I don't want to say worrying, but you know what they say, prevention is always better than cure. And if you think, you know, you might have a little bit of heart disease niggling there, it's better off to go and do your diet and exercise and, you know, have your regular checkups than to rock up at the ER with a heart attack only to kind of have a doctor say to you, oh, my God, you're having a heart attack, (laughs) and then proceed to, like, prescribe you with a pack of Siggies, a bottle of Jim Beam and Coke and a hamburger and say, well, good for you, but you know what? You're on your own. So it's kind of analogous to that, that sort of situation, I think. So prevention is better than cure. It's also a hell of a lot cheaper. It's interesting that you bring up the financial side of things, uh, but uh, what can our listeners do to help build a more sustainable Sydney? 
just get on with it. Don't rely and wait for state or federal governments to do stuff for you. There is a bunch of money in grant funding for great ideas that get along with the job. There are groups that you can join. Go and check out what the Extinction Rebellion are doing. Don't get too sad. Like This stuff is really heavy and really depressing. So keep looking for examples in your community. It might be anything from dealing with transport emissions by riding your bike. Like Little actions do sort of, you know, they are significant. But more importantly is that we need to remind ourselves that we kind of own the government. They act on us. When we're talking about all this money being invested, that is our money. So keeping not getting too depressed is probably the <laughs> is probably the key key piece of advice look for some grants um you can hit hit me up on my facebook page if you're looking for ideas and of course we'll provide some links um to fbi letting you gladly know share them where the money is at thank you so much for talking to us this morning jess i really hope this continues the conversation around climate yeah. emergency yeah, thank you. Thanks, Nat. Thanks, Shami. That was City of City Councillor Jess Miller on our local government's commitment to lowering our carbon footprint. Stay tuned because later on the show we'll be speaking to an associate at the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at Sydney University on the state of Sydney transport. So we want to know what's the most annoying thing about Sydney's public transport system. Text us in on 0409 945 945 or tweet us in at FBI Radio. But for now, this is Maniac from Goldlink's new album, Diaspora, and a language warning on this one. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Sydney's public transport seems to come under fire every other week, whether it's late buses, delayed trains, or simply the generally ineffectual way the system is run. But recent shake-ups and innovation will see us paying less on our O4 cards, as well as allowing modern technology to let us learn the roads before we drive them. It looks like Sydney's transport is finally inching towards joining us in the 21st century. But how just but just how smoothly does the intersection of public transport and Sydney's youth run? And should we expect delays? We have David Levinson, an honorary associate at the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at Sydney University, here in the studio to discuss all things trains, planes and automobiles. Hi, David. Hello. So uh, why do you think Sydney's public transport system gets such a bad rap and is it deserved? Um, people complain. People <laughs> complain about everything. People in small towns complain about stop signs. People in medium-sized towns complain about stopping at the red light. And in li- big cities, people complain about delays. Now, that's not to say delays are a good thing. Obviously, people wish that everything worked perfectly every time. But... American cities, almost all of them, would kill for the level of public transit that that Sydney has. Um, The high frequency of train service, the uh, good coverage that it has, the buses that come fairly frequently. Not to say that it can't be improved. It can be. But people here, if they went to other cities, would be really surprised about how bad the public transit is in, in North America. Yeah, it's actually, it's really interesting because I was saying before that generally my trains come on time. Um, so that's, that's a good thing. And I haven't, I don't really have beef with the transport system as much. I think buses, really not? <laughs> I think, I think buses are a little bit worse than trains, but it's interesting to see you make that comparison between um, the US and Australia. Yeah. And buses have to fight traffic, whereas trains are, are typically grade separated. So they don't have to stop for cars. 
And so if we could improve our bus system, that would be great. We could start to give lanes over to buses if we made a public policy choice to do that. And these kinds of exclusive bus lanes would improve bus on-time performance, would make buses uh, more efficient, and if buses were faster, we could run the same number of buses more times a day, meaning that the frequency of buses would increase, the weight between buses would drop. So there are lots of things we could do to improve public transit, um, but it requires taking scarce road space away from cars and on-street parking, which is politically difficult. If it were politically easy, it would have been done a long time ago. And so this is the tension that we face. Car drivers think they own the road. Um, politicians will tend to listen to them in most places because more people are car drivers than public transit users throughout most of the metropolitan region. Public transit in Sydney is about serves about 20% of work trips. Um, automobile serves about 60, 70% of work trips. So many more people are in cars and have the view from the windshield of how the transportation system which should work. They're not opposed to public transit or other people. They're just not in, willing to use it themselves for their particular trips. And they're not being irrational. For most people's trips, public transport doesn't work very well to connect them with their homes and their workplaces. But if you're working downtown, it's excellent. So it, it depends very much on where you are. Yeah, that's actually really interesting that you mentioned that about 60 or 70% actually use the roads, whereas about, I think it's about 20% that you said that it was, that use public transport. And so I think that kind of fits with an announcement that the New South Wales government made. A $50 Opal cap is going to be introduced to adult commuters on Monday. So do you think policies like this will, we can expect a renewed influx of public transport use? I I don't know that that particular policy will make a big difference because in order to get the $50 cap, you have to have been spending more than $50 already. And so the people who weren't using public transit very much weren't spending more than $50 already. That's more of a benefit for existing users and encouraging them to support the government that gave them this discount. Uh, I think there are policies that could be done and, and, and have been done in, in recent years. I think the the biggest policy shift was the widespread deployment of the Opal card. And it came late to Sydney compared to other cities to have this smart card. But the idea of a smart card where I can tap on and tap off and don't need to specially buy tickets and don't need different tickets for different modes of transport is uh, really helps make the system a lot more seamless. And so it's not a, a from today's perspective, not a very high-tech solution. Um, it was in the 1990s when they were st first started to be deployed in other cities. Hong Kong um, had its Oyster card, um, Octopus card, and London had its Oyster card uh, well before Sydney had the Opal card. But the ability to just have this one card and use any public transit transport vehicle, it makes it a lot easier to use multiple modes. And we've seen a, a huge uptick in transit usage over the last few years and kicking off really when this when this was implemented. Um, reducing the prices of transfers, so making it so that the system is seamless and you're not paying an extra fare from going from one mode to another is also an important type of shift, which makes people think about the system as a whole rather than thinking about bus trips as separate from train trips. So if we can get people to be willing to transfer once on their trip, the transit service will 
get to many more places than if they expect a single seat ride between their home and their destination. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Shami and Natalie. We're speaking to Sydney Uni Professor of Transport in the School of Civil Engineering, David Levinson, about how transport innovation could soon be changing the way we travel. Uh, so, David, your organization um, does a does a lot of work in transport policy and institutional reform. What can we expect in terms of future innovation for our transport systems? Well, oh, uh, as of um, this weekend, uh, RMS, the Roads and Maritime Service, that had separately had been a separate uh, agency from Transport for New South Wales, is being integrated into the organization. And now this is sort of seems like a small bureaucratic change, but it's really a profound difference in the way the organization and government is going to look at transport as an integrated thing and taking away these separate fiefdoms and moving this towards an integrated look at how can people in New South Wales move about um, in in whatever mode is the best for them is an important shift. And so this is something that's going to be happening um, immediately. Uh, Over the longer term, we've got technological changes. Uh, The field likes to talk about the three revolutions coming, electrification, sharing, and automation. Electrification, the move towards electric vehicles, we see this already with e-bikes, the line bikes that are on the streets of Sydney and scooters that are on the streets of some other cities. And this is, of itself making it so that you could use a bicycle and, A, go farther for the same amount of effort and go faster um, for the same amount of effort, meaning that you can go up hills a lot more easily with an e-bike than you can if you're pedaling yourself. The idea behind this um, is in part driven by the falling costs of batteries and um, that, that we've seen with cell phones and other technologies. And it's increasing the ability of people to consider bicycling as a feasible mode of transport. So the main barrier in New South Wales has been the high fines that are associated with um, biking illegally in certain places and helmet laws, and in particular, the lack of bike la- protected bike lanes. Um, so if you compare... Uh, Sydney with, say, the northern European cities, um, particularly those in the Netherlands or Denmark, um, we don't have very many protected bike lanes here. So people who are bicycling have to bike in traffic and they have to gear up in armor. They have to put on helmets and they're made to seem like another type of person, not a regular person because they're wearing this special outfit for traveling. And this is this makes it very hard for people to bicycle in a normal way. If you look at photographs of people bicycling in the Netherlands, they're not wearing helmets, and the safety is much higher, right? So they're much less likely to get killed while they're bicycling than someone who's riding in New South Wales. So David, what kinds of policies and innovations uh, uh, are you and your colleagues researching right now? Um, You work in the transport lab, is that correct? Can you tell me a bit more about that and what kind of great, amazing work you're doing there? Uh, Yeah, so transport lab, me and colleagues, um, we're working on questions about measuring accessibility how many jobs can be reached by different modes of transport in a given amount of time? For instance, the how 30 many? minutes. If, well, it depends on where you are, of course. But uh, the plan for Sydney, the uh, metropolis of three cities that the Greater Sydney Commission put forward, talks about the 30-minute city. And so the question is, can you reach the things you need to reach within 30 minutes by, by public transit or walking or biking? Um, 
that's important. And most people um, in Sydney can get to their jobs by automobile in less than 30 minutes, but by public transit, it takes you on the order of about 45 minutes. Mm. So this is this is a difficulty. If you want people to be able to reach their destinations within 30 minutes by public transit, we need to change the land use pattern in Sydney so that many more jobs are where, near where people live and many poor people live in the job-rich areas in the, the eastern part of the it metropolitan region. It feels like region. a very, 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 very big undertaking. How can we make this happen quickly and effectively and efficiently? Um, it's a long-term plan, not a short-term <laughs> plan. Okay. And um, what results now, David? <laughs> <laughs> so um, there are things that could be, could be done that would improve the system, but getting people to move their homes and move their jobs is something that takes decades, right? You're gonna, new jobs will naturally start yeah, appearing in uh, Western Sydney. The market will drive it that way. Public policy could push it in that direction. Um, there are things like moving more government agencies from the eastern part of the city to the western part of the city, or even you could imagine moving Parliament itself out to western Sydney, would be something that would help stimulate employment in that region and help balance the commuter flows. Now, I'm not saying you should live or work anywhere solely for transport reasons, although I, I mean, I'm a transport person, I think that way, but those are, those are the kinds of trade-offs. We're also seeing automation coming about, and the idea of uh, vehicle automation is really important because um, if people are no longer driving their car, they're willing to travel longer because it's not as much of a burden. And so that's probably going to cause people to travel more than they do now. Um, there are things that public policies we could be implementing like road pricing, charging um, for all of the roads, uh, not just selected more? motorways. Well, we're already paying a fuel tax. And so then the question is, um, are we paying for the full cost of uh, travel? And we're really not. We're not paying for local roads. We're not paying for pollution. We're not paying for crashes. Those are all externalities that are put onto other parts of the hmm. system. And if we charge a lot for motorways and not for local streets, what happens? Um, more people will be traveling on local streets and fewer people will be traveling on motorways. Honestly, We're wasting David, resources. Honestly, David, everything you're saying is so wise and so well thought out. And obviously, you're an academic in this space. Naturally, it would be. But I am very frustrated with the state of traffic and, and the state of transport that I honestly just want to stay home and watch Netflix. So um, I could talk to you all day, honestly, David. But thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, that was David Levinson, an honorary associate at the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at Sydney University, talking to us about policy changes and tech innovation in the public transport system. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Another big thanks to our producers, Eden Faithful, Swetha Das and Pip Leeson. And thanks again to our guests, Councillor Jess Miller and David Levinson. We'll catch you next week. But before we do, we're going to play a track by Stormzy. So actually, Stormzy became the first black artist in history to headline Glastonbury. He's Vossy Bop.